0: Father, we thank you for um, just today and what you have given. Lord, you are so good and gracious to us. Um, we see that in multiple, multiple ways. And Lord, we thank you for even just this week that we have uh, set aside on our calendars to remember uh, the final week of um, uh, the culmination of your your mission, your fir- mission, and your first coming. Um, so, Lord Jesus, we just pray that we would um, speak with you and speak about you with others. Thank you for the conversation Rachel was able to have a little bit with her boss and pray that that would uh, be able to continue and um, just be an ongoing conversation and pray that you would work on her boss's heart in that way. And so we just, we ask for grace in that. We just ask for grace for this week that you would bring people into our paths and our works, fears, and um, family relationships uh, to speak of you, Lord Jesus, in your resurrection. Um, so, we ask for that. We pray for that. We thank you for your goodness to us. Bless this morning as we talk about uh, you, O oh Lord God, and your character and who you are. Um, and just pray that you would be honored, uh, that your name would be treated as holy as we speak of you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so uh, we have been talking about knowing God and um, how do we do that? That's the goal of our existence is to know God. We don't want to just know more facts about him. Uh, through the gospel, we know Him relationally. But then, um, we, as we have a relationship with God, we want to, we do want to know more facts about Him, but not just so they stay as facts, but so that they change our affections and our dispositions. Um, we've talked about um, how do we address God, God's names, and it reveals some about His character, not everything by any means. And then we are just uh, starting, especially last week, into walking through how does God prevent. Uh, pre- present himself to us. And so we talked about God as creator last week and um, him creating everything and not just creating everything, but sustaining everything uh, by the word of his power. Um, And so we did that. Now, uh, Patricia, Patricia's not here this morning, is she? Oh man. Well, you'll have to relay this to her. So Patricia asked a question last week. Well, um, what about in creation? Does time also get um, created then? And so it just kind of raises this whole issue of God's relationship to time, Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We might as well. It got brought up. Uh, And uh, so we want to talk about God's eternality, God's eternality uh, this morning, okay? And to start off with, let's just go to some passages um, that speak to the issue, right? Scripture is not silent on God's eternality. There are certain um, things that it does or um, may or may not say, but... That um, does have much to say about um, God's relationship to time. So, uh, go to Psalm ninety. Psalm ninety. And um, someone, when someone gets there, read Psalm ninety one through two. Don't forget the heading, the prayer of Moses, the man of God. That is part of the scripture. Um, so go ahead and read from that heading um, through w- verse two. So that's that's the editor's heading, and then the one right below that where it says a prayer of Moses, the man of God, that's the that's the scriptural heading. Yeah. Moses, the man of God. Lord you have been our dwelling place
1: in all generations, before the mountains
0: were born, we but you who gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It's one of my favorite verses in the scriptures. Um uh, it's beautiful. What does it say? And it specifically, what does it say? Like, so we we've got the mountains. Why does he bring up the mountains? You think? Uh, yeah, Bruce. Sure, um, but like, why would he speaking to his his audience? Like, he's talking in the context of like God's existence, uh, and he, he references the mountains. So you think about like Mount Adams and Mount Hood. We have great examples of wonderful, beautiful mountains, right? Uh, And they had some in Israel as well, right, all over the place. Why do you think he references the mountains? What is it about What's that? Right, and the permanence, right? The permanence of it too, right? They're majestic, they're beautiful, they're massive, and at least in terms of time, how we look at them and normally think about them is like, wow, there's nothing... Uh, more permanent than that, right? At least on a day-to-day conceptual basis. Like, they're, uh, they're big, they're majestic, and they are permanent. How are you going to move that thing, right? And God is saying, well, before, before those things came into existence, before the most permanent thing you can think of came into existence, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, why do you think he says, from everlasting to everlasting, was he communicating? The never ending before to the never ending after. Exactly, right? We're going this way and we're going this way in terms of the timeline. As long and as far, uh, everlasting going this way and everlasting going that way, God is. Um, from everlasting to everlasting, God is. Um, so we see here this, this idea of God just everlasting is. I don't know if you've just sat and kind of thought about that. Uh, you know, often kids, as they're growing in their conceptual understanding, they'll ask the question, well, what was before God? Right? They'll ask that question. Maybe you've been asked that question as a parent. Like, what's before God? And and then you say, Noth- nothing. There was nothing before God. God has always been. Um, as far back um, uh, ages and millennia and however far back you could think, God has always been. Uh, from everlasting to everlasting. He's always going to be, too. Um, he's not only, uh, has always existed, but he will always be, uh, and that should, if you just meditate on that thought, right, it's, you should, your mind should just start to smoke a little bit, right? Because we, uh, um, we are bound people, we had a beginning, and we will have a physical end, Uh, we won't have a, you know, our, um, we know that, uh, we will exist forever, but, um, uh, we have a beginning, and so to even think about a being that doesn't have a beginning is just is amazing. Um, so, uh, how do we transition that to? Uh, well, let's let's go to one other place. So, the Psalm ninety, I love Psalm ninety one and two for talking um, about God's um, everlastingness. Uh, go to Revelation. Let's see another place. Revelation one eight. So, John is getting a vision on Patmos, um, and in the midst of that, we get, well, several declarations of majesty, but we get Revelation 1.8. Someone go ahead and read Revelation 1.8. Okay, so let's take that a little bit at a time. Uh, what is he communicating by saying alpha and omega? Beginning. Yeah, beginning and the end, right? So uh, alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, omega is the last, so he's the A to Z. He's not only the beginning and the end, but he's everything in between too, right? Uh, it's communicating his total um, existence um, through, through everything, right? Um, uh, everything along, um, and, and probably specifically, even the timeline. Even though there's probably a little bit more than, to that that he's saying, but, and then what does he say after that? You see the alpha and the omega, but what does he then say? Say, what does that mean? So he is, and he was, and he is to come. What's that communicating? Now, yesterday, forever, yeah, after. past, present, and future. Right. God exists now. And as he is speaking this, he's saying, I exist now, and I existed in the past, and I will exist, I'm coming, and that's how it's described here, I'm coming in the future, right? So, everlasting um, through all times, uh, God is, right? And he is the Almighty One, uh, which is a title we've talked about before, okay? So, um, what have we learned so far, just from Psalm ninety and Revelation one? What what is the conception of God's relationship to time that we have seen so far um, from the scriptures? Well, it doesn't. The scriptures had not said that yet, right? What do the scriptures say? Yeah, he exists. He exists. And he exists, even in the way it's describing it, he exists past, present, and future, which is temporal language, right? So he exists on the entire timeline. Hasn't said that he's outside of that timeline. It just says that he exists everlastingly, which is true, right? We, everyone's going to affirm that. God exists everlastingly, uh, uh, past, present, and future, okay? Um, all right, uh, let's, let's look at some more. So that's what Revelation 1.8 and Psalm 90 have said. Let's look at Isaiah. Go to Isaiah uh, 46. And this is kind of... um, Well, it gives us more insight, another way of looking at all of this. So let's uh, do uh, uh, Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. Another one of my favorite passages uh, for a number of reasons, but... um, Someone, go ahead and read. So, in just to give you a little context, in this section of Isaiah, uh, God is basically um, he's speaking against the idols that the nations of the world have gone after, but not only the nations of the world, but also Israel. So, they've gone after all these nations, and God is at pains in Isaiah forty through sixty-six, well, forty through fifty-five, even more particularly, to say, "Hey." Let me show you that I'm God and all of these other um, uh, idols of the, the nations, all these other supposed gods are worthless. Okay? So in the midst of all of that, um, that's where this statement comes. Okay? So Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. So I'm going to go ahead and read that. Remember this and stand
1: firm. Recall it. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, My counsel shall
0: stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Okay, so where does this passage, how does this passage intersect with God's uh, relationship to temporal events? What does it say? Where do we get some temporal language in these verses? 10. Yeah, 10, right? What's going on in 10? He's showing
1: that he has the ability to control or take command
0: mm-hmm. of the whole span. Yep. What we what we would call time, if you're going to put it in a temporal sense. Yeah. Whatever it is, he's got control over the whole span. Yep. X, absolutely, right? He, he declares, I love this, right? God declares the end from the beginning, right? So it's not only that he exists, um, past, present, and future, but he also declares, like, all right, this is what's going to happen. Uh, so this intersects with God's sovereignty, right? We see that. But it's also just interesting. It's not only that God exists, but he declares all every single event that is going to happen. Um, So he plans human history, if you want to put it that way. Um, Things not yet done and saying, my counsel shall stand. So God's staking his reputation on the fact that I know what the, he not only knows what the future is, he not only knows what all events in history are, he's declared them to be so. And he will, he's staking his reputation on the fact that I will cause it to pass. I will make it happen. Um, and that's part of the whole argument in Isaiah, is like for God to be able to do that, he can do that. The idols and the false gods of the world can't, and he's connecting that with his, that shows that I'm God. That's what he's effectively saying here and in the, the surrounding context. So it's not only that God exists, God determines all events that come to pass, and from the beginning. So that means that God knows absolutely all of the same moment past, present, and future, right? God knows every single event, um, every single thing that has happened, that is happening, that will happen with perfect, um, and we would see this from other passages, with perfect knowledge, right? Um, But, um, so God exists in all times, but he also declares uh, all of history, and he knows everything. He knows everything that happens in history. Which again, how does this help us? Like, just just take a, a. This is all factual knowledge, right? We're gathering that that notional knowledge, but how does this how does this affect our hearts at this point? Oh, go, go ahead. Uh, we'll finish Brenda, and then we'll go Tony. Yeah, it is so, it's so beyond, it's alien, right? Alien in a true sense, right? Like, because we're just not like this. We, um, our knowledge is limited, right? But our span is limited, but God is not. Um, And it is just awesome. Um, And uh, uh, so we see that. Tony, what were you going to say? Yeah. Against the blindness of temporal man, mm. or in that case, idols that man worships. Right. It's ludicrous to God because, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. I'm the only one that can see the whole picture. Right. You know, you but even in um Saul, if you look at the context there, that's exactly what God is doing. If you follow on, it yeah. starts to show how deficient man yes. is against that eternal. Yes. But Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead and read verses three through four because that's where we're going next. If yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, see uh, in in Psalm.
0: Yeah, in Psalm ninety. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Psalm ninety three through four. So we're just going to go ahead and carry on because this is because um, that's where we're going next. So. So, God's eternality over against the man of dust, right? The men and women of dust. Um, it's it's awesome and it's um, absurd, you know. On you know, in terms of worshiping any other god, uh, but um, you know, positing our own notions of what God is like over against this eternal God. So, God's eternality, right? Um, it's not just a raw fact. It is also. God justifying himself to be God and uh, showing, like Tony said, the fallacy of, you know, worshiping um, anything else, okay? Uh, Now, uh, I had, um, so look at verses 3 through 4 in particular, and this is one of those phrases that we always think about in God's relationship to time, and you see it here in Psalm 90. The other place we'll go to briefly is 2 Peter 3.8, but what does it say? Um, What does it say in Psalm 90 verses 3 through 4? In terms of like uh, temporal language, what's being affirmed about God's relationship to time.
1: So comparison-hmm
0: Yeah. So God's experience of time is very different. <laughs> right? A thousand years is like a day. Uh, but it doesn't just go that direction. In that sense, you're saying, okay, long time, but it, God experiences it uh, or views it or perceives it uh, as a day. But go to 2 Peter 3.8. Second Peter 3.8, uh, and someone go ahead and read that. Just to clarify briefly, this is not Yahweh, this is Kurios, so it's just Lord. So um, just, just to let you know on that. But um, st- same God, so we know that. Um, but what's the difference between Psalm 90 and the way, what it says and what is said here? It flips it. It, yeah, it does actually both at the same time, doesn't it? Because it says one way, a thousand years is like a day. But then it also says, a day is like a thousand years. Isn't that interesting? Like, if you think about it, like he's saying both at the same time, and uh, both are true. So God experiences or perceives, um, however you want to say that, um, uh, a thousand years, like a uh, a day, and it also says a day is like a thousand years. So God, again, that's very strange. Uh, Like, we can't do that. Now, we have the experience of, like, time speeding up or going quick, passing quickly, or slowing down so you could kind of maybe draw an analogy with that but this is this is all what we can say is that's that's a very different experience of time than what we what we experience but yeah you have to Peter has a very right here, saying, well, when is this right you know, why is God right to speak, speak the lord is not slow to fulfill mm-hmm. his own.
1: Absolutely. You, uh not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach retention. Mm-hmm. So the beauty of God being
0: a temporal, I guess I would say, mm-hmm. not untemporal, but a atemporal is it doesn't really matter to him in that
1: sense. He will be patient because time doesn't isn't the factor, the factor
0: is salvation. Right, and, and that's where you're absolutely right. Like he's saying, like His perception of time, of quickness, of slowness, and he's orienting that in this passage towards patience. right? So it intersects with another aspect of his character. Absolutely. Good. Um, Okay, so what have we affirmed so far? God exists, past, present, and future. Uh, God determines all events that come to pass. Uh, God's perception and experience of time is different from ours. Did any of those passages say God is outside of time? Uh, go ahead, David. Yep. Well, let me put it, pose it to you this way. Um, so there are, there's lots of passages that we could touch on. Did those passages? What does the text say? Did any of those passages affirm that God is outside of time? No. Yeah, so that's the issue, right? We can at least see the Now remember one of our axioms that we talked about a few weeks ago? It can never be wrong to speak of God the way that scripture itself speaks of him as long as we're understanding texts in their context, right? And I would just argue that none of those texts affirm that God is outside of time. So then that raises the question, is God outside of time? Right? Now, if you're anything like me and growing up, like you've just always assumed that that's true, right? God's just outside of time. But I would challenge you and say, I don't believe there's anywhere in Scripture that explicitly, now you could argue for implicitly, that explicitly affirms that fact. So then we have to ask a question. We're in kind of this category of like, well, now are we dealing with a category that is outside of Scripture? Like the Trinity, right? The Trinity is a, category that is out is extra biblical and yet it does encapsulate what scripture itself affirms we believe that so now we got to be careful because it's like well where are our categories coming from and are we bringing to the scripture something foreign or are we deriving from the scriptures what it can be affirmed so now we need to ask a question um well we need to make an affirmation first. Um, it, it doesn't in general seem to be something that Scripture spends a great deal of time thinking about. Like, we have these passages that do talk about God's everlastingness, but it doesn't seem to be like philosophical reflection, if that makes sense. Um, so then we need to think, be very careful about how we proceed, because it's like, well, is this a category that we bring to the Scriptures or that we derive from it? Um, so let's, let's talk about two views. That theologians have had, and that current theologians have, of God's relationship to time. One is what we would call everlasting eternity, where God is temporal, but um, He is uh, not in the sense that time is a created thing, but that time is part of who He is, like goodness. Is God outside of goodness? God is good. It's part of who he is, right? So in a similar way, this view would say that time um, would be part of who God is, part of his life that he then communicates with us. The other view, the outside of time view, is what is called atemporal eternity. So that's the common outside of time view, and atemporal eternity essentially is this. Atemporal eternity means that past, present, and future all really exist. So the past really exists, the present really exists, and the future really exists all at the same time. Like, you can kind of think about it like a block, right? So you get this block, and uh, it all exists at the same time. So past exists, present exists, future exists all at the same time. It's all really real, and God sits outside of that, right? So that's the other view. You've got the everlasting eternity view, and you've got the atemporal eternity view. So on one side, the everlasting eternity view, you've got guys like Bruce Ware, John Frame, uh, Jonathan Edwards potentially held that view of God is not outside of time, but time is part of who God is. Um, That one's a little bit, I don't know if Edwards for sure held that or not. On the other side, you've got a bunch of other theologians, actually the majority, holding the, uh, um, the atemporal eternity view. So we're gonna explore this a little bit, okay? So, prepare to have your minds bent a little bit. Um, So, uh, like we said, the atemporal eternity view would say that past, present, and future all really exist. I.e., the past is just as real as the present, which is just as real as the future. So even as I'm speaking, the past really exists in that view, and the future really exists in that view. On the other hand, the everlasting eternity view, the temporal view, Uh, basically, in general, not everyone that holds this view would would hold this, but generally they would say only the present exists. So only the present moment exists. Not to say that God doesn't know all that has happened in the past, or the present, or the future, but what actually exists is only the present. Okay? So doesn't always, um, um, those who believe in a a temporal eternity sort of view, uh, don't always. always hold that the present only exists, but a lot of them do, okay? We also know this. Genesis 1 does talk about how God created the planets and the stars and these things, the lights in the heavens, to do what? To mark out seasons and times. So God gives a clock, right? So the physical movements of the planets, the stars, the physical creation— even at the minutest level, right? Like the vibrations of atoms and stuff like this, right? It's it's providing a clock for things, okay? So we would affirm that when God creates everything, the physical universe, right, then the, the, the stuff that moves by which we measure time is also created. But you can have time without physicality, can't you? Because... All that's required to have time is a change. If you have state of affairs one, state of affairs two, and they look different, then there's gotta be time. That's how, I mean, I mean, you could dispute that fact, but that's in general how like philosophers would talk and they would agree on both sides that if you have a change at all, it doesn't have to be physical. If you have any sort of change, Then you have time. Okay, so then we say, all right, let's let's go to the scriptures then and say, can we affirm that God experiences change? And some of you are saying, Well, we know that God doesn't change, right? We 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 believe that God is immutable. What does it mean that to say that God is immutable? Right, so you, this is a whole other question, right? Because uh, this, this whole question about God's relationship to time uh, intersects with God's immutability. Uh, some people think that when, God says, uh, when Scripture says, I mean, we can think about Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. But what does he mean by that? Again, we would look at the context, and in that sense, we would look at his character, his purposes, his will. Uh, his person. So in general, uh, you could say, some people would say, well, God doesn't change at all, like zero change. That's what's called strong immutability. But some people would just affirm, and I think this is more in line with scripture, that he is immutable in his person, like Rachel just said, his purposes, his will, his decree, declaring the end from the beginning, and his ethical rules, his morality, right? He, God is an ethical being. He, he, he declares right from wrong. Um, so, uh, we still haven't answered the question, right? Is there a change in God's life? Well, what would we need? We would need to be able to say, there is a situation in God's life where that looks different from another situation in God's life. Go to John seventeen five. So Jesus is praying to God. So you've got the Son praying to the Father, right? So if anyone knows anything about God's life, it's the Son and the Father. And so this is like inter-Trinitarian dialogue. It's happening from earth to heaven, yes. Um, But what does Jesus say as he's praying to his Father? Verse 5. Okay, so Jesus had glory. When did Jesus have glory? Before the world existed. So Jesus affirms that there's a time or a situation when the world doesn't exist, yes? In God's life, because that's when he's experiencing glory. uh, Jesus is experiencing glory before the world exists. And then he's asking for what here? He's asking to be glorified again. Does the world exist when Jesus utters this? Yes. And he's, he's saying, he's talking to his father. He's t- the, 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 God is talking to himself. He's saying, there's a before the world existed and there's an after the world existed from God's perspective. Meaning what? There's a situation in God's life where the world didn't exist, and there's a situation in God's life where the world did exist, which is a change from God's perspective, which means God experiences time. You see how that works? Um, You can see other, there's other aspects of this. Go to John 1. Now, I'm not saying physical time, right, like uh, stuff like uh, physics measures and a clock measures. I'm just talking about differences, changes. If you have a change, it doesn't have to be physical, you have time. Um, It doesn't bind him, and that's the thing that you have to keep in mind. What, you know, when we say that God is outside of time, what we're really trying to affirm is that God is not like bound, right? Like he's not bound by some sort of physical thing, and we affirm that, Absolutely. That's where it's helpful to compare it and contrast it with another attribute of God's being, like goodness. Is God good? Yes. Is God bound by goodness? Well, in the sense that it's part of his character, but uh, it's not separate from who he is. It's part of his life. Goodness doesn't have the power over God. Yeah, it's, goodness is not an abstract thing that exists independently of God. It's part of who he is. The definition of goodness is God. Right, it, and it's a it's an attribute that he shares and communicates with us. So, in a similar sort of way, my argument is that uh, time is part of God being always existing. Uh, he calls the next moment um, uh, into existence, and then he shares that with us. It's just part of who he is in his life. But evidence, right? Where's the evidence? So, yeah. Yes. Because, yes. Because that's really important because even what Christ experiencing, he entered into that physical time. He entered into that big time to, on oh, the characters like, part of that. Building. Yeah, absolutely. There. What's that? Yeah, so so just so everyone's hearing, like, you gotta be careful, you know, that we differentiate what we're talking about from physics and physical time which is the world that Jesus stepped into. And so we're not denying any of that by what we're saying, right? But actually that very act of Jesus stepping into is a change, right? Otherwise things get really wonky pretty quick. Um, That's a proper theological term, really wonky. Um, But look at John 1. John 1, 1 and 2. Um, Someone go ahead and read that. Okay, so the Word, um, the second person of the Trinity, exists with God. We know that. Um, He is God, He's God from all eternity. And then what happens? Verse 14. Okay, so is there a situation in the Trinity's life where the Son was not incarnate? Yes. Is there a situation in the Trinity's life where the Son is incarnate? Yes. Therefore, there is a change in the experience of the Trinity's life, and therefore there is time. Not in the physical, like I'm going to measure it with a clock sense, but in the sense of how God has um, chosen to act. Um, and so, uh, here's an even more close to home example. I'm just trying to show you examples in scripture that, yeah, it seems to affirm the way scripture talks is that God, his experience, his state of affairs of his life, there's change in that, not in the sense of his person or his character or his will or any of that, none, no change in that. But in the, his, uh, you know, experience, his perception, his, what, what actually is. So go to, here's the one that's closer to home. Go to Galatians 4. Paul's talking about the gospel, and he's talking to the Galatians about, um, you know, how they've received the gospel, and now how they're deviating in their views of it with regard to their sanctification, um, but... Someone read Galatians 4, 8 through 9. Galatians 4, 8 through 9. Okay, so is there a state of affairs in God's life where we don't know God in the sense of salvifically? Yeah, we have to affirm that, right? Because we're, we, we're all sinners by, um, um, by, by nature, right? Is there a state of affairs in God's life if you're in Christ where you do know God? Yes. So there would better be a change in how God perceives you Otherwise, God perceives you equally as condemned and as justified. See, that's the problem once you start affirming that God is outside of time. If God is outside of time, then he sees everything equally present. Meaning he sees you, well, let's let's go back to the first one. He sees the creation as existent and as non-existent at the same time. In other words, creation eternally exists if God is outside of time, which is a problem. Or, if we go to the Incarnation, uh, the Son equally uh, is incarnate and not incarnate at the same time. And unfortunately, some of the theologians that hold the a-temporal eternity view, the God is outside of time view, actually affirm that. They say, well, creation is just as eternal as God is, um, because you kind of have to, logically. Uh, They would say it's dependent on him, it's contingent on him, but it's, if God is outside of time, then it has to be equally as eternal as him. I'm like, uh, now you're way outside of what scripture actually affirms. But even worse, in terms of my salvation and knowing God, like Galatians is talking about, God sees me equally as condemned and as justified at the same time. And that's just not how scripture talks. And so, you know, it's just like one of these things that we throw around and we don't think about it, uh, and we're actually imposing, I argue, uh, an extra biblical category on the scriptures. God doesn't talk about himself as a temporal; he talks about himself as temporal, uh, and he communicates his life with us. Not in the sense that time is some exterior thing by which God is bound, but like goodness or love or these other attributes of God, they're part of who God is, and then he communicates them with us. Um. Now, a couple other just clarifications here. Uh, Some English translations, like the New King James Version, will include phrases in the New Testament like before time began. So you'll see that in some translations. And just to let you know, like, uh, you can, in the original, there's other ways to understand those in a faithful way that doesn't doesn't mean before time began. Because if you just read that, it's like, well, it says before time began. Well, it's like, nah. The the original doesn't actually necessarily read that way. So my argument is, no, God is not outside of time, because time is part of God's life that he communicates with us, like other attributes, like goodness, like love. God is not outside of goodness. God is not outside of love. It's part of his being that he shares with us. Uh, And then the final clarification, where did the idea of God being outside of time come from? Uh, It came from Greek philosophy, or at least that's a good example of it, because Greek philosophy, guys like Plato, they would talk like this. And Plato existed before Jesus came onto the earth, right? So this is an idea that was current uh, in the ancient world that you know um, the the you know Greek philosophers would talk about you know uh, God or gods being outside of time. And so really, what happened in the development of church history even is in the early centuries, uh, because Greek philosophy was there and about, it got melded together. And it seems like that's ultimately influenced a lot of even uh, uh, theology uh, that we've gone down through time, such that like, it's orthodox, or it feels orthodox, to say, well, God is outside of time, when really, you trace the idea, and well, not necessarily so. And, more importantly, if we measure it against what I believe the Scriptures are affirming. One final thing, I'll get to you, Julie, I promise. Um, this is not a hill to die on. <laughs> like there are good people on both sides that I think it has implications for how you view things, and we want to be as accurate as possible. But there are great and godly men on both sides that argue each way, and it's like one of those things that's like, uh, yeah, if you believe God is out time of time, great. Uh, we can love the, love our Lord, love the gospel, and walk faithfully. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fight over that. So. I'm just, since it came up, I'm just presenting um, kind of the argument and how I personally view it. So, um, Julie, your hand was up. So, um, the scripture that talks about when God introduced himself to Moses, yes. and he used the term, I am. Right. And that kind of takes you out of any kind of context of, God. so how, I mean, I don't know whether it was We're, originally and originally. Right. So we, were you here? Were, you guys might have been gone that week. We talked about that passage. Um, but basically my argument was that when God says, I am who I am, it's actually, um, I, it should be, I will be who I will be. And God is saying, this is who I'm going to be for you in the Exodus. And it's not a statement of God's eternality or fundamental nature. Right. Well, me too. Yeah. Like right. Right, so um, that was that that week I think maybe that you guys were on, but I think in context it's better to take it um, not as a statement about God's inherent um, essence, but in terms of uh, I'm going to show you my character in the Exodus, which he does, Um, and even in declaring his name, uh, the Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and bounding instead of past love. So we went through that that one week, so good question, yeah. mm-hmm yeah
1: mm mm-hmm. Mhm.
0: Yeah, and I, I would just, you know, so all of what you're saying of like God is God is orchestrating everything for his glory. And he communicates his life to us, um, his, his being to us, who he is to us, so that we can then, by God's grace, exercise faith, come to know him and enjoy him forever. And uh, we're always going to be temporal beings no matter what. That's just part of who we are as humans. So whether God is outside of time or whether he's not, we're always going to be temporal, and God is going to, we're going to enjoy him um, um, and him unfolding all of his attributes and character, which is without searching out, remember Psalm 145.3, for all eternity, right? For everlasting ages and ages and ages. I mean, that's how, um, you know, Paul talks in Ephesians 2. So... Um, yeah, we got to keep in mind, like, that's the problem, is sometimes when we think about theology, we can get off into these, like, corner questions of, like, I'm just not sure that scripture is designed to take us there, um, versus, like, what is God doing, right? He's majestic, he's awesome, he um, is always exists, um, and we we, why do we want to reflect on these things, again, back to the affectional knowledge, right, so that we love him, that we enjoy him, that we magnify him for his worth. No matter which view you take. Um, and that's um that's the key. Brenda. Chris, would you mind just repeating what you said? If if we were to take the temporal view, yes. then God would be both as contempt and justified at the same time. The atemporal view. The atemporal view. Yeah. Okay. Um but you
1: said he would also see Christ as
0: both well it you would if he he would see the sun as incarnate and as not incarnate at the same time. That's what it means for God to be outside of time, is that like he's seeing everything. The past, the present, the future all really exist. um, And they always exist. um, And God is outside of all of that. And he sees it all equally. So then he sees the sun as incarnate, um, and then the sun is not incarnate at the same time. Or he sees... Uh, again, the other, you know, with regard to creation, you have to basically affirm, and and there are theologians who do this, that creation is as eternal as God is. It's contingent upon him, it's dependent on him, but they have you have to do that, I think logically, if you're going to affirm that God is outside of time. Okay, that, that made a little more sense to me, uh, what you, you talked about it, way over my <laughs> So I'll just keep here. Yeah. I think, it's, I think it just gets you into, if you hold that view, and if you logically follow it through to its conclusion, it gets you into weird things that seem to contradict what Scripture actually says. And, we're, if we, and that's my whole point, right? Like, we want to talk in language that Scripture itself is using. We want to affirm what Scripture affirms. And we do this all the time. It's really easy to bring in a category that Scripture actually doesn't use. And you can do that in a good way, but you can also get yourself into trouble, right? And that's that's a good lesson from this, whichever view you take, is you just gotta be very careful. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's what I am taking home from this most, is that you know you can you can make very reasonable and good logical
1: leaps on a
0: shallow level, but if you haven't considered everything, your logic can be equally as wrong as it is yes. logical. Because then you're basing it not on See, you're not basing it on revelation at that point. You're basing it on your logical ability. And so, like, yeah, and, and that's unfortunately, that has happened more often than it should. And even good and godly men, they're like, well, this is true. Therefore, this, therefore, this, therefore, this, therefore, this. And then they hold this way out here as dogmatically as they hold what scripture affirms. And then if you start contradicting this up here, like, as soon as I. I I'm, I know I've disturbed some people by saying, well, I don't think God's outside of time. And I'm just saying, well, I think it's one of those things up here that's been a logical deduction. And I'm just kind of bound by the scriptures that I just don't think they affirm that, right? And so I have to, you know, and again, it's not one of those hell to die on sort of things. So. Yeah, a lot of it. Yeah because usually when people say god is outside of time all they mean is that that god's not bound by time and like it's like some sort of thing outside of him that's like constraining him and we don't affir- i don't affirm that right because i think it's part of who he is and sharing who he is so think it's a prime example if you something not specifically about time right but go back and study the history of study oh yeah mm-hmm Yeah. So they stay with the Aristotle and view um, yeah. you know, the rotation of the heliocentric blah blah blah. Right. They study what led them off of the track, and yeah. it'll start to speak a lot to how you can lay off base if start looking to look at these things. Right. And so like we're saying, like the big takeaway then is like um what does the text actually say? Um and measure our traditions, our Whatever whatever it is, we always come back to what does it actually say God's and God's true purpose in it. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you um, that you um, are who you are, that you always exist, that you are now. You were in the past and you will be in the future. You have declared the end from the beginning. Uh, Lord, your experience of time is far different from ours. We understand that and we magnify you for it. Um, Lord, just uh, pray that we would be uh, faithful in coming back to the scriptures, understanding what they actually affirm. Uh, Help us to be careful um, and reverent um, to what you have revealed about yourself. We thank you that you've communicated yourself to us. Uh, We pray now just so you prepare our hearts for worship and speaking of who you are, speaking your praises, praying, uh, hearing your word preached. May you be honored and glorified. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.